If you'll excuse me, I just need to write a note with my new fountain pen. <laughs> just kidding, of course, you wouldn't give me a... That was from the sermon last week. You wouldn't give me, a guy like me, a fountain pen. Uh, and actually, part of that story, I told Danica about it when I got home, and she texted Kirk something along the lines of, uh, Kirk, uh, fountain pen equals my everyday life. So. <laughs> it's true, it's true. That's why I always wear a black shirt, because I'm just... <laughs> uh, it's good to be here this morning. I, Drew hit it right on the head when he said, uh, this world is messed up. I'm sure you all know that. We live in a world where uh, people go after one another because they don't like someone. There's slander everywhere you turn. Don't like what someone looks like, so people are willing to kill them or hurt them, mistreat them, oppress them. Don't like what someone believes, willing to ostracize them, name call them. Just turn on the news, there's abuse everywhere. People domineering over other people. Leaders love power to hurt others below them. People exploit the weak. I mean, where do you go to find a place that is peaceful? You surely will not find it during your pilgrimage here. And you know, even if you just went to a place where there's no people, the earth itself will get you. If there's earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, famines, pestilence, even the wild beasts will get you. This world indeed is a messed up place. It's not safe. Uh, that's why we fear sending our kids off, because we know what awaits them. Why is that? Why is the world the way it is? We can easily recognize that the world is a messed up place, but the question is why? And how long is it going to be like this? Our passage this morning is going to give us a part of the answer, not, not the whole thing. That Scripture has more to say on that answer, but it'll give us a part of why is the world, the way we experience it, the way it is with so much messed up evil in the world and so much destruction from the earth itself. We're in the midst of the book of Revelation, obviously. We've come to a section that we might call the seal judgments. It actually started in chapter 4, verse 1, and it goes all the way to 8, 1. If you remember our introductions, uh, sermons to the book, uh, we have uh, what was called, if you remember, recapitulation. It's this idea that the same event or the same course of history is declared again and again, somewhat like you would uh, a touchdown pass in a football game or something that it's the replay. It keeps going over and over, but from different angles to see different aspects of it and honing in on certain players and pausing as the ball's in the air a certain, uh, for a certain position and such. And the book of Revelation works like that, where we, we go through the, the sealed judgments from the time of Christ's ascension, his, his death and resurrection, then he ascends to glory. From that point all the way to the final judgment. And then it 
replays back to the, through the trumpets, and it goes through that series, and then through the seven signs, and then it goes back through the seven bulls. And that's the way the book works. It starts off with the, giving us actually the setting of the churches, right? If you remember, the seven churches representing the church as a whole throughout all the ages, the different experiences that the church has. At times, the church is oppressed. It's mistreated. It's ostracized. Communities withhold jobs from Christians at times or won't sell them food. At other times, the church is struggling because internal uh, teaching has gone astray. And people are tempted to follow false teaching. At other times, it's the, the just being pressed by the allure of the world and it begins to seep into the church and it, it begins to, to drag the, the church out into the world, uh, not to witness to the world, but to enjoy the world, the system of the enemy. And that's the, the situation of the churches that John's writing to. And so as he goes into the sealed judgments, you remember the last two weeks we looked at this opening vision of God on the throne of all the universe. That that's the very central place in the world, in the universe, is God sitting on his throne. That was chapter 4 where we saw the creatures, the four living creatures, the 24 elders worshiping uh, God on his throne. And then, at the beginning of chapter 5, all of a sudden appears a hand holding a scroll. It's written on inside and outside, you remember. And uh, the passage that Danica read, no, nobody could open the scroll. And this is very upsetting to John. He begins to weep loudly, we're told, because no one can open the scroll. And if you remember last week, the scroll... And Kirk said it earlier, too, again today, is the decrees of God for the course and destiny of history, right? Namely, the fact that God is going to judge the world and bring salvation. And it's as if, if, if God had his decree written down on a scroll, this, this is what the scroll would be. It's, it's a vision. It's representing that God has decreed what will happen in the world. He will unfold the judgments and salvation for his people. And only, only the slain lamb was able to come and take the scroll. Of course, on the scroll are these seals, and that's, he has now the authority to open these scrolls. And so chapter 6 through 8-1 is actually the opening of the scrolls, so that, or I'm sorry, opening of the seals, so that the scroll can be read. So if I were to title this section from 6-1 to 8-1, that's the actually opening of the seals, I would title it something like this. I would say, only God's sealed people will come through the sealed judgments. Only the se God's sealed people, that's a couple weeks we'll get to that in chapter 7, only God's sealed people will come through God's seal judgments. We're not going to do the whole section today from 6181. We're just going to focus on uh, the first five seals. He kind of whips through them, and we'll see this pattern throughout when we get to the trumpets and the, the bowls where the first few kind of whip through it, and then we have a pause. I would name this section, or I would label it this way. I would say the theme of 6-1-11 is that God uses the forces of evil to carry out his decrees, of judgment and salvation. Or we would say the lamb uses 
the devil, or the forces of evil, the powers of evil, he uses the schemes of Satan to carry out his decrees, his ongoing decrees of judgment and salvation. This is how the Lamb carries out history of the judgments. So we're going to walk through. we got a couple new characters to meet this week. Uh, we have four horsemen, and then we have some souls of uh, some folks under the altar. So first, just want to start off by meeting these characters, and then we'll uh, make some observations about them, and then just ask a, a simple question at the end. But first, let's meet our characters. Uh, you may have heard the name or the phrase, four horsemen. Is that familiar to, a, to you? It's, it's kind of a, you know, a popular, we use that in our culture. So I just kind of Googled four horsemen and see what I would find. So there's a restaurant in Brooklyn, uh, New York, called the Four Horsemen. Uh, there's also an alcohol drink called the Four Horsemen. It's just four different uh, hard liquors that put together. Uh, there's a music group called the Four Horsemen that actually has five people in it. I couldn't. <laughs> At least that's what the picture looked like. I don't know. Uh, there's a, a song uh, by Metallica oh, long ago, a heavy metal band. Uh, don't raise your hand if you listen to that, but uh, uh, it's called The Four Horsemen. Uh, there's a movie called The Four Horsemen, actually a documentary, uh, a lot about kind of economics uh, and, and the use of power. Uh, there, in 1922, Notre Dame had a football team that... Uh, that there was four players on the offense that they called the four horsemen because they were, they were meant to be this destructive force that would come through. So the four horsemen from Notre Dame. And of course, uh, the one that I actually grew up uh, knowing, does anybody know what this symbol is? No? All right. Well, my, my friend always told me I did the symbol wrong anyways. And maybe that's why. <laughs> but uh, wrestling. There was the four horsemen of wrestling. Ric Flair? No? There you go. Yeah, somebody knows Ric Flair. All right. So the four horsemen around for quite a while. Uh, so I, I, you know, I grew up. I didn't know that this was actually coming from the four horsemen of the, the apocalypse. Uh, but that's, this, is where the, this is where all this comes from, is the four horsemen that we find uh, here. Possibly also Zechariah 1, 6, those are horsemen of chariots, but, uh, or chapter 1 and chapter 6. But here we go. We got four horsemen. Let's meet them. Uh, the first one, uh, if I were to give him, him a name, I would call him the evil conqueror. So verse 1 again, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I, I heard one of the four living creatures say with a, a voice like thunder. Here John goes again. This is a, a loud book, right? Back and forth with this loudness. With a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So who, who is this horse? Is, is this a good horse or a bad horse? This is part of the big discussion about uh, this horse. Uh, there's many who, who take, understand this horse to be Christ himself, or someone that represents Christ is on the same team, so it's a, a good rider with this horse. Uh, and there, there's good warrant for that, exegetically, uh, as you read the, the text. Uh, if you saw the last time that word conquer was used, as God has been, uh, Christ has been telling the church to conquer, chapter 5, uh, verse 5, if you saw that, the root of David, uh, the line from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. 
And so that's the last time that word has come up. And then we, re- we, we meet someone riding on a horse going out to conquer. Secondarily, uh, he, he's riding this, this white horse. In chapter 19, Christ is going to be riding a white horse. So that would be good reason to think that this possibly is Christ as well, as well as like when white is used throughout the text and throughout the book, it is used of purity, the good works of the saints or the, the holiness of God himself. So the, there would be good reason uh, to think that it would be Christ. Uh, I take it, uh, as well as many others, to, to actually be an evil conqueror. This is, this is an evil uh, rider, uh, mostly because, or a couple reasons, you have the four horsemen that seem to go together all as one, having the same nature. Uh, this is coming out of the imagery of Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 6, where these four uh, horsemen riding chariots went out to patrol the earth and to execute judgment on those who persecuted God's people. Uh, and they all had the same nature in that sense. They were all on the same team. It would seem to me to make sense that these also are on the same team. They clearly go together, being the horsemen, also when you have the four living creatures in order, saying, come to them. But also this idea of white, uh, it could actually just be cultural. Uh, When rulers would defeat another country or take over a city, the the ruler would ride into the town on a white horse. This is is a way of showing that we have conquered you. And so that that was normal. And throughout the book, you'll actually see the beast uh, imitates the Christ. He's an imitator. He's not the real deal. But he does things to try to imitate uh, our great Lord to deceive people. And he comes in with his abusive power, this evil power, an evil conqueror. As well as there's other things in the vision of chapter 19 that are different from uh, this one. Nonetheless, I take the evil, uh, or this, this rider, to be an evil conqueror. He comes in with power and greed to hurt people, but he conquers them, consumes them. And then the next three horses are the results of what happens as he comes in. The next one, uh, I would call the peace remover, if I were to give a name. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now, we don't know exactly how this happens, but nonetheless, uh, people are killing each other. They're slaying one another. Again, this is, this is a vision, so it doesn't mean like immediately everybody's dead. This is a vision. It's this idea of people against one another, hating one another, going after one another, willing to give one another up to protect themselves. The idea of peace is gone, right? Peace has been taken away. Now, one thing you should see uh, that uh, most would agree on this uh, is this use of the word slay in verse 4, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. That word throughout the book is used exclusively to refer to Christ or his people being slain. So, except for one other place about the beast in chapter 13 who has a horn that seems to, it appears to be slain. 
but he was healed. Again, he's an imitator. But throughout the book, it's always used about Christ or his people being slain. If you remember from last week, we saw it three times. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Verse 9, uh, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And verse 12 in the song, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And here it comes back up again. Those They're slaying one another, and it shows up later in the passage as well. Verse 9 of chapter 6, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So most of us would agree that chapter, this second horse, although it is talking about just in general communities going against one another and, and killing one another, slaying one another, using that term is calling specifically, almost to say especially slaying, slaying uh, the Christians, those who follow the Christ. So it's taking peace away from the community so that they go after one another and kill one another, but especially they do so to the followers of Jesus. You hear it that way. Then we have a third horseman. Uh, this one I would call the food remover. Uh, in verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the, living cre- the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, the black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and a thir- three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. This, this one's interesting because it appears there may be some sort of a famine, which is totally possible. Right? There's, no, there's not enough food, so it's scarce, and so the prices rise. That's possible. It's possible that the famine would be only for certain crops here, because you notice that the oil and the wine are not harmed. So the, the, the idea of the, the, the vine harvest is not touched by the famine, if there's a famine, but the wheat would be. Now, it's interesting if it's just simply like they, they're not, there's no water. Another option uh, would be that this is actually intentional oppression of people. Uh, the idea of uh, the rich keep all their pomp, right? And so it's the declaration to let the rich become richer and the poor become poorer, the idea, right? Because uh, with that much wheat, a quart of wheat for a denarius, that's roughly anywhere from 8 to 16 times higher than the normal price. So it's clearly uh, too much for a person. Uh, it was said in the ancient world that uh, one soldier... Uh, would eat about a quart of wheat a day. So we're talking uh, one daily's amount of food for a person, and it costs a a denarius, which is one day's wage. So in other words, you go to work for one day, you have enough for one day's worth of food for one person. Uh, Or if you have three quarts of barley, you have one day's wage is enough for three people to eat. But that's all. That's all you get is the food. You don't have food uh, money for the rest of the necessities of life, except who does? It's the people that have all the oil and the wine. Once again, many would look at this and say, this is calling not only for food scarcity, intentional food scarcity, but in especially towards the Christians. Because you remember in the letters, uh, we were introduced to the people at Smyrna who were extremely poor. 
This is the way it goes, especially in the world, uh, when Christians uh, become followers of Christ, especially if they've left uh, a, a certain way of belief and they've become a follower of Christ, they are ostracized in the community. Finding a job is difficult. I was just reading a book uh, of a woman from uh, Pakistan who, who uh, was actually uh, planning to be a jihadist and had a vision of Christ, came to faith, and then she, she left that. And uh, her family wanted to kill her. She had to run away from home, never was able to return. Uh, but she, then she's meeting all these Christians. Uh, she can't hardly even leave her house lest she be killed. Uh, she certainly can't go get a job. And the Christians that she's living uh, with, it's just this, these little huts with uh, four kids, a husband and a wife, and just this, just this little square. Why? Because no one will give them a job. Why? Because no one will give them food. Why? Because they follow Christ. That's it. If they would renounce Christ, they could have a job. And so this is the way it is in the world for many followers of Christ. You follow him, the community will say you're on your own. You can't come in. And so many would point to this third one as this direct, intentional oppression of the church. Uh, And then the fourth rider we have uh, actually is given a name, death. And Hades was followed followed him, verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This, these four... Uh, Ways of death were thought to be uh, kind of the, all, all, is, is a way of summing up all the ways people could die in the ancient world. So it also comes from Ezekiel as God's disastrous acts of judgment he will send on people who rebel against him. Uh, but these clearly uh, are meant to kind of pull the final death blow. Right? All, all these riders come through, the first riders come through, and then this third one's kind of the cleanup crew. Just whoosh, death sweeps through uh, the community. But nonetheless, all four of these, regardless of how you take them, everybody would agree that these visions are meant to paint the world as a place of chaos. It's a place of evil. It's a, it's a place of sorrow and sadness, especially for the church. So everybody would agree with that. If you just take that piece, that's what these visions are trying to get. The four horsemen create the world or make the world to be a place of chaos, a place of sorrow, and especially so for the church. And then we have some other characters that we're introduced to. Verse 9, this shows how the church is responding to this. How do, we do, how do we do this? What do we, what do we think about this? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
So we're going to see these characters again in chapter 7. They're going to show up once again, these uh, martyrs. People have been slain for the word of God, verse 9. I understand this probably to represent the church whole, uh, representing all the church, these folks that were slain for the word of God. Let's just just jump back to chapter 20 just so you see it uh, real quick. Chapter 20, verse 4. This is, the, this is the cry of the church throughout this age then, as, as all these judgments are being poured out. Chapter 20, verse 4, says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was, was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Almost the exact same phrase there, right? The souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their heads. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So what happens here? So you see this. First he talks about one people group, uh, those who were raised to life to reign with Christ, and those who were not. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. But in this first group that were raised to reign with Christ, you actually have two people groups. You have those who were beheaded and those who had not received the mark of the beast. You see that? In verse 4, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. The idea then is that everyone who follows Christ um, is included in that first resurrection of being raised, either that you were beheaded and you died, or you simply walked faithfully, did not worship the beast, and you followed Christ and you died some other way, but you were a part of this first resurrection. Uh, and the rest are part of the beast. So you have two people groups. Within the one people group are beheaded and just simple followers of Christ. Nonetheless, I only show that to say I think in these, this fifth seal is representing all the church, those uh, who worship Christ. And the cry is, how long? How long is this going to go on? And of course, they're told to rest a little bit longer. All right, so those are our characters. Uh, let me just make a couple observations about this so we can see it. They're pretty simple. Uh, first of all, when we read this section, we should see that these are recurring judgments throughout the ages. So we're not supposed to read the, the horsemen and, and, and look through history and say, okay, that, that was the white horse, and the red horse is this person, and the black horse is this person. These are recurring judgments that started at the ascension of Christ. This, this, this just keeps going on. In the same way that you would say some promises of God are recurring throughout all history, like the, the promise of God to draw near to those who draw near to him. In the same way, you would say certain judgments are recurring throughout all of history. So we're not supposed to try to pinpoint where all these people are. Um, second, these are, these are universal judgments. There, there's, there's no country, there's no gender, there's no age that is exempt from these. These are, these are judgments on the world for every generation, in every town, every city, every nation, every state. It goes everywhere. But part of the hard part is that it's 
unequally distributed, isn't it? I mean, just even within this room, I mean, some of the calamities that we experience on earth, we all experience calamities, but we experience them on different levels. There there are some here who have experienced way more calamities than I have. So it's just very unequally distributed, and that's actually part of the frustration. As a country, we have it pretty good in terms of these calamities, and other parts of the world have it very destructive. But they're universal judgments, they're unequally distributed, and it will be like that throughout the ages. Third, uh, notice that these are divine judgments. We don't want to miss this. The, 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 the riders pictured, those who are bringing in the judgments or this evil chaos, are presented as evil characters. These are, these are bad horses. You don't, you don't want them to come over to your house or anything like that. These are, these are the bad ones, right? But they are underneath the authority of the Lamb of God himself. So first of all, you see it in the calling of come, right? The, every rider is told where to go, when to come. They're told from the four living creatures, each of them, uh, the four living creatures are around the throne, around the throne of God and of the Lamb. Uh, but also, look at verse 2 at the end of it. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. This is authority, the victor's crown, uh, that was given to him. Presumably from the living creature. Verse 4, uh, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace. Actually, this, it's the same word as given. He was given the authority to take peace. He didn't have that authority in himself. It was actually given to him from someone else. Again, I would say the four living creatures. The lamb, ultimately, through the four living creatures. Uh, verse 8, down there you see it. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill. They were given authority. They didn't have it in themselves. Death did not have that authority. It was given to death. Uh, and then, of course, you see it also in verse 6. When a voice coming from the midst of the living creatures, presumably Christ himself, the lamb, sang a quart of wheat for Daenerys, a third of, uh, three, three quarts of barley for Daenerys, and do not harm the oil and the vine. Again, just trying to point out that it's the lamb of God who decrees these things. He's the one in authority in them, over them. The evil powers are not. They're given authority. They don't have ultimate authority. And lastly, worth uh, noticing is that they all have purpose. These are divine judgments that have particular purpose. For the church, it is to purify the church. And for the world, it is to bring judgment upon them. So if you look at the the idea of judgment, uh, all of these are also calling up from Leviticus 26, Two important places in your Bible, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. This is the giving after the giving of the law. God gives the, pro- the blessings and the curses of the law. If you obey me, I will open up the heavens. You will have rain. You will have food. Your, your women will have children. You will have peace in your land. But if you disobey me, what will happen? God says, I will send pestilence among you. I will send famine among you. I will send the sword among you, I will send the wild beast to take over you. All four of those are right in Leviticus 26, uh, Deuteronomy 28. These ideas, and they're always meant to be calling people to repentance. 
right? Because in Leviticus 26, God says, look, if you still won't turn, after I've sent the sword, if you still won't turn, then I'll increase it a little. Then I will send the famine. If you still won't turn, then I will send the pestilence. If you still won't turn, then I will do this. And the passage ends. But if you do turn, I will remember my covenant. I will shower you with blessing. The idea is that the judgments uh, on the world are meant to call people to repentance. The pestilence. I mean, that, that's, that means you ask a simple question like a virus. If you've ever been around where there's been a virus going crazy or something, you know. Is this a judgment of God? Well, on some level, yes, right? I mean, this, this would be right out of the passage. Is it, do we point and say, well, like this, this is like, and try to connect the dots? No, I don't think so. But if this is true, if, if this is true that the world is a place of chaos with pestilence and famine and it will be like this until the end and they are sent by the Lamb of God himself declaring them, well then yes, they are judgments of God. But they're meant to call people to repentance because ultimately they're pointers. This whole, this, the, the whole passage is moving to get us also to the sixth seal, which is the final judgment. It's this idea, if you, if you remember in Luke 13, when uh, people come to Jesus and talking, talking about the Gentiles, how they were, some were killed uh, by Pilate, and uh, there was also a tower that fell on people. And Jesus turns and looks at the people and says, what, you think your sins aren't as bad as them? Repent, or you'll perish just the same. It's this idea that Jesus is saying, look, when you see calamity, it should be a picture for you of a greater calamity to come. And that should stir up repentance in us. So that's one of the major purposes here that Jesus, uh, these judgments are meant to have is to stir up repentance. But also, for the church, it's meant to purify. It's meant to purify. We actually saw that if you turn back to chapter 2, verse 10. We saw this in the church in Smyrna, this poor church that was oppressed. Chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus tells more calamity coming. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tri tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And if you remember that, I was trying to show uh, when we went through this, it's the devil is the one putting them in prison by the authority of Christ. The purpose is, is to test, to kind of show, show, the, show the true character of the person, to purify. It's, it's that idea of like putting uh, metal into the fire and, and getting rid of the dross to purify it, to test it. Now, does the devil want to test a Christian and, and purify them? No, absolutely not. It's Christ who is purifying the church in Smyrna through these sufferings, through... By the agency of the devil there. That's what we see right there in that passage. And it's the same way uh, with these judgments that are poured out by the horsemen. They are meant to purify the church. And so those are just, just general observations. My question then as we kind of like near, try to land the plane here is what if this is true? What if, what if this truly is theological reality? What if, what if this is part of the reality that is being unveiled to give us power and endurance, or uh, power to patiently endure, as we have the title of the series. What if this was real? How do we then respond to this reality? Just a couple quick 
uh, thoughts here. Uh, this this might be obvious, but uh, I don't. This is not directed at anybody. But just in case, uh, I think if this is true, I think we should stay clear from making predictions on when Jesus is going to return based on the calamities we see. If these are actually the calamities that that have gone on throughout history and they will go on throughout history until the return of Christ, then we should withhold ourselves from jumping in the frenzy of trying to predict when Christ is going to come. If you actually Google this, um, the predictions of Christ's second coming, uh, I, was, I was actually floored. It must be hundreds. Uh, through, there's somebody on Wikipedia uh, has like cataloged all these and like throughout the centuries, they're all over the place. People are always predicting when he's coming and usually it's based on calamities that they see or some kind of numbers that they're putting together. Uh, but we should, we should stay clear from that. Uh, the reality is, is every generation, every generation in the church thinks Christ is coming back in their time. Now, it may be. Uh, we're supposed to be ready, for sure. But we should be careful uh, the way we speak of that. Because either everybody was wrong, right, that the four horsemen have come, or everybody's right that the four horsemen are here. And I think everybody's right, Right? If, if the four horsemen judgments recur all the time, then they've already come and they will be here for a long time or until Christ comes. Second, though, what if this is true? Uh, we, should, we should not assume there will be ever an earthly institution or some program that is going to help us all get along. Right? No matter what politician you choose, they do not have policies that are going to help us all get along. There is no social program that will fix what's going on. If these are divinely commanded judgments on the earth that stir up a world of chaos, that's out of human hands to actually fix. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue peace. We, should, we are actually commanded to pursue peace. But there will not be peace I mean, you know how if you ask a, a two-year-old or a, a second grader, like, how they would change the world if they were president, and, you know, I would make world peace. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. And we should just know that. And for the church specifically, we should not think people are going to like us. Why do, why do we think that the world should like us? Scripture seems to paint the opposite picture. We should expect the world to dislike us. If it hated our master, it will hate us too. And so we should expect that. The danger of the church is simply to try to, to, to quiet down or, or dumb down things so that the world likes us. When Scripture actually says the world is not going to like you. And we shouldn't expect it. But third, what if this is true? Uh, we should actually expect to experience divinely ordained hardships in the world. That, that's what we should expect in the next year. That we are not exempt from experiencing these hard things of the world. Whether it be pestilence or famine, sword, we should expect it. That doesn't make it easy, but it helps part of, the, part of being knocked down, right? I mean, if you were just walking along, we were walking along together and I just kind of like, nudged you like that and you weren't expecting it, it's, you're going to be swayed. But if you knew I was about to kind of shove at you or you were expecting it, you, you brace yourself and you can withhold that or withstand that. 
In the same way, as Christians, followers of Christ, we should expect these sorts of things to come into our life. Right? We reject all theology that says that the world should be safe and simple for us. It's just not reality. But fourth, uh, some of us need to hear that God's people need not fear the calamity. Uh, Many of us are anxious people. I would be one of them. And I hear a passage like this and it makes me nervous. Because I don't want to experience pestilence. I don't want to experience disease, hardship from the world, accidents, or mistreatment from other people. I don't want to experience that. And so it makes me afraid. But brothers and sisters, if Romans 8.28, right, the the famous statement that uh, God will make all things work together for our good, for those who love God and are called according to purpose, if that's true, then we not need fear anything that's coming this week or next year or next month or next decade. There is nothing for us to fear if it's true that they are divinely orchestrated happenings on the earth. When you experience calamity, it is not because Satan has the upper hand. It is not because God has forgotten you. It is not because God doesn't know what to do. It is actually from the hand of God caring for you, shepherding you, purifying you to display his glory to the world. Now, I got to say, I think one of the most helpful things for me in this is that's why I love Christian biography. Christian biography helps us see somebody walk through hardship and do it in a way that honors God. I'm reading a book right now called uh, When Faith is Forbidden. It's a, it's a, if, if, you, if you've never done uh, Christian biography, this would be a great one to start on. It's uh, 40 days, uh, reading 40 different, uh, it's not all 40 different people, but it's by this uh, author, uh, Todd Nettleton. He's, uh, he's worked with Voice of the Martyrs. And uh, for, for decades, he's traveled around the globe to care for persecuted church, uh, the persecuted church and to learn their stories and to communicate them to the world, so making the world aware of the persecuted church. Um, and this is a compilation of kind of just walking with them uh, through 40 days. And they're short kind of devotionals, but that, that's called uh, When Faith is Forbidden. And one of the themes of the book uh, that he, he talks about, he's reading from some of his journals as he's gone on these trips, is that uh, as he prepares to go meet so-and-so, who he knows uh, has lost his family or was, was uh, you know, kicked, uh, deserted from their family or lost their job because they're a follower of Christ or were in prison or their husband was in prison or whatever it was. They're going through extremely hard circumstances. He's regularly assuming he's going to show up and see someone kind of broken and weak and sad. But he says this, this theme that when I show up, they're full of joy. They're full of, like, knowing that Jesus is with them. And this begins to have an effect on him. And I think that's one of the great things about reading Christian biographies is is you hear that God has grace for his people when these sorts of calamities happen. And part part of the problem with us who struggle with anxiety is that we're always looking to the future, afraid of the calamity, because we feel like we don't have the strength to do it. And of course you don't. Because we don't have God's grace for that at the moment. God will give grace to his people when we need it to purify us.
uh, sixth here. Or again, we just two more real quick. Uh, if this is true, believing this is not me- does not mean the absence of groaning for a better home, but increasing it. So I say this for this other group of people that uh, at times. When, when hard things of life happen, I don't know if you experience this, but there's this groaning that happens in you for a better home, a better place, right? For glory to come. And this groaning, actually, you're afraid is dishonoring to God, right? It's, it's this idea, I should be able to go through this hard stuff with a better heart attitude. Why am I groaning for something better? Um, but I actually don't think that's the case. You know that... You know that uh, verse, that God will make all things work together for good for those who love God. Five verses earlier, Paul says, we groan inwardly for the redemption of our bodies. Creation groans, we groan. And actually what happens is this calamity, while yes, we can trust and rest that God will change it, uh, work it together for our good, but it creates this groaning, and the groaning is good. It's a good sign to say, no, this is not home. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I groan to be with my Lord at home, where my true citizenship is, where evil is gone, and everything's restored. That, if you experience the groaning, don't be discouraged by that. that that's good. God has put that there to turn our hearts to look to him into glory. And lastly, and we'll end with this, uh, we need a good shepherd. If this is true, we need a good shepherd that will guide us every step of the way. How else are we going to get through these calamities of the earth that we surely will face? That's actually where the, the, the passage is going to go, to the sealed people of God. That's how we'll make it through. Uh, but we even saw it in 310 where he told the church in Philadelphia, uh, what does he say? Because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial. We need one who will keep us all the way to the end. And that's exactly what the Good Shepherd has promised us to do for us. That Christ holds us in his hand, the Father holds us in in his hand, and nobody will, or no one will get us out of their hands. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need, that's what we have. Now, the good news is that promise is not coming from an earthly father. Earthly fathers, earthly mothers make promises to the kids. All the time, they don't come true. All right, I just did it yesterday. Our daughter wanted to go to science and sur- surplus store. She had some gift, gift certificate. And she wanted to go, uh, what was it, at 5.30. And she's like, what if it's closed? And I said, no, it's fine. Like, let's, let's do what we're going to do. We'll go after. Uh, so we went there at 6.15, and guess what? Closes at 6. Good night. And so we drove away, and I was just reminding her, like, good, good thing is, Daddy is not God. Daddy makes promises that don't happen. But our Father's not like that. Our Heavenly Father is the one that sits on the throne of the universe. The Lamb of God is the one that took the scroll and is opening it. He's the one that when he promises, surely he will fulfill. And we know it all the more because he who did not spare his only son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And therefore we turn to the Lord's Supper to remember that our Lord went all the way to the cross to bring us to the Father so that we can trust and know indeed we are children of God. If you're a follower of Christ, the table is open for you. And a reminder, the elements are always in the foyer if you don't have them with you.
the Lord's, the Lord's Supper is, is meant to be a way of uh, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns from 1 Corinthians 11. We proclaim it together externally. But it's also this receiving from God, that receiving the truth of the death and resurrection of Christ through which we were bought and purchased to be a people for God. Brothers and sisters, we can know that no matter what calamities we face in the world, today, this week, this month, this year, that we have a God who is for us and will use it to purify us. And we know this because even the greatest, most horrific act in history, the slaying of the Son of God, was to advance the purposes of God, for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And so with that, we partake. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. If you're here this morning and you are groaning, groaning from the pain of the world, the calamities unleashed on the earth, may the cup remind you that one day that groaning will be over. One, two weeks from now, we'll be at the end of chapter 7 when every tear is wiped away from the eyes of God's people. We look forward to that day, and it's sealed for us because of the blood of Christ. He took the cup in the same way after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let us stand and pray together. God, we are reminded that we are, we are small people, frail and weak the world is a, a scary and dark place, but we proclaim as best we can this morning that you are king. You rule over all things and uh, the forces of evil are under your hand. So we submit ourselves to your care and ask God that you would increase our faith to walk in humble joy waiting for you. In Christ's name, amen.